is something we track quite closely given how uh, near and dear it is to, to our hearts here at Quilty Analytics. And um, it is weird out there, no doubt. Uh, it's been a, a very volatile market. I think everyone sees that in their, their PA uh, pretty much every day as of late. Um, and the space markets are, are no exception. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, and welcome back to the Downlink Podcast. If you've been paying attention to the latest third quarter analysis and are not a space finance and market expert or a space economist, well then, you're likely like me, confused. If you read The Motley Fool, you might be suffering from FOMO or fear of missing out. There's been a steady drumbeat of headlines like, two explosive space stocks to buy in 2022 and beyond, and... Everyone could win in this new space race. And Credit Suisse definitely has a case of FOMO. This organization just initiated coverage of both defense and aerospace stocks. Analysts there like the defense, but space? Not so much. And it should be noted that while Credit Suisse poo-poos space companies, it has some troubles of its own, like recovering from a $5 billion write-down from a string of scandals. And to top it all, many of us have this gut feeling that we're headed into a recession. So we've got a stellar group of space market analysts and economists to demystify what is actually going on in the space capital markets and the space economy writ large. Because they do a lot, I'll let them introduce themselves. Here's our conversation. Hello, and welcome to The Downlink, Justin, George, and Brendan. Good morning, Laura. Pleasure to be on today. Hey, Laura. Great to be here. And thanks for having us. Now, before we talk about just what we can learn from the space market's third quarter and September's numbers more specifically, let's do some short introductions. You know, like where you are, your organization, and what you're working on. And Justin, why don't you start? Sure. Thanks, Laura. And thanks for uh, inviting me for today's podcast. Um, so my name is Justin Cadman. I'm a partner with Quilty Analytics. We are based in St. Petersburg, Florida, and we are a satellite and space-focused uh, boutique focused on nothing but satellite and space, offering research strategy and investment banking advisory. Uh, by way of background, I've been a practicing investment banker for well over 15 years now, and uh, the bulk of my time over the last five to 10 years has been dedicated to this industry. Um, and here at Quilty Analytics, we've got uh, a long-earned reputation as being uh, one of the thought leaders in the sector, both in terms of our uh, widely read and widely distributed research, as well as the transaction advisory services that we work with our clients on every day. So again, appreciate you having us here. And George, why don't you go next? Thanks, Laura. My name is George Pullen. I am an adjunct professor for the University of Hampshire's Law School, where I teach in blockchain and deep tech. I also cover their space economic curriculum. I also teach at Columbia University in their summer program for the space commercialization and space economics course. We've been doing that now for about four years. I also am the economic facilitator for the Space Force Futures Workshops, which Dr. Mosher runs. 
And in addition to teaching, um, I also have a consultancy, uh, Milkway Economy, where we offer education services to people engaged in the space industry. But thanks for having me on. And Brendan, what about you? Sure. Hey, Laura, thank you so much for having us and great to be on here with uh, George and Justin. So my name is Brendan Rousseau. I'm a teaching fellow at Harvard Business School here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, we have a small but growing uh, set of research and pedagogy on uh, the developing space economy. We think it's going to be the most uh, important and impactful uh, industry in the 21st century. And so we're digging in using an economist toolkit to figure out what we can learn about it and uh, help teach the next generation uh, of space leaders. So thanks for having us. Um, great to be here. This episode is focusing on the Quilty Analytics Market Monitor Report for September. But obviously, the findings haven't just popped out of a hat and into the vacuum of space. There's a market environment. And for a lack of a better term, it's getting kind of weird out there. It seems every other day, so-and-so is predicting a recession. So before we dive in, I know many of my listeners would benefit from a brief explanation of just what a recession is. And how would you describe the general health of the equity markets today? And which of you two professors wants to give it a go? I'll take the first stab. Uh, that's the beauty of Laura, you having two economists on, you get to have at least four opinions with two economists. Um, <laughs> little, little economics humor there for your for your audience. Oh, no, and, so, and, and well received, I must good. say. I'm glad. Um, so when we have more than two quarters of negative growth, i.e. decline, we classically would refer to that as being a recessionary environment. Um, that's the definition that we teach to our Econ 101 students. Um, and that's the definition I'll I'll keep with here. And what what's the general sense of the health of the equity markets today? I mean, are we in a recession or are we tipping towards that? I mean, what is the general environment? Brendan, why don't you give that a go? Sure. Uh, I'd, I'd like your characterization of it's weird out there. Um, I think it depends of uh, on who you talk to and whether they work on Wall Street or Main Street. But um, it's, uh, it is weird out there. We see interest rates rising. We know that um, talking with folks who are pitching uh, space companies and looking to get uh, capital, capital is harder to come by and more expensive than it was you know, a year or two ago. But by the same token, you've got other uh, economic signals like uh, unemployment levels um, that are telling maybe a different story. Um, so I think most people whose opinion I trust say that the recession's coming and uh, how far away it is and how serious it's going to be, uh, that seems like an open question to me. I don't know if, George, if you uh, have any uh, further insight on that, but I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the signals that I like to follow, um, you know, as an economist, when we think about our, our economic toolkit, it's a lot of uh, what, you know, what forecasting tools we'd like to access and what they mean. But uh, Professor uh, Campbell Harvey out of Duke, uh, he has a very famous one for yield curve inversion. And to super simplify that, that's when the interest rates on two-year debt is above that of interest rates on 10-year debt. So uh, short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates. And people can understand that because it's very unlikely that you would normally be compensated for things that you lock up for a short period of time relative to things you lock up for a long period of time. A lot of people have experience with CDs or um, things like that, instruments they're familiar with. And so when those two things get inverted and we pay higher interest rates on two-year debt than 10-year debt, that's classically been a very bad sign. Um, it 
actually, we actually had a yield curve inversion back in August of 2019, which does, in fact, seem like a lifetime ago to all of us here. Um, <laughs> we, we did have a yield conversion then. Um, that was one of the only times that we didn't see the two negative quarters within 36 months. And we recently had another yield curve inversion. So that's a, it's a very powerful tool. It's been correct uh, seven of seven previous times. So I think it's one that we should all keep in mind. Um, I also enjoy the chemical industry manufacturing index. Um, the chemical industry is a great indicator of overall economic health, and it's also recently showed some contraction. So with the markets confirmed being pretty weird, now let's get back to the space equity market and the Quilty Analytics report. And Justin, you are the author of that report. Give us your key findings. Sure, absolutely. So just uh, to, to give a little bit of context and background, uh, we, for a number of years and even predating into a, a former life of mine, uh, have issued a report each month that summarizes uh, the both private and public market activity across the space and satellite ecosystem. So both public equity raising uh, venture and, and, and private uh, equity fundraising, as well as uh, M&A transactions. Um, and this is something we track quite closely, given how uh, near and dear it is to, to our hearts here at Quilty Analytics. And um, it is weird out there, no doubt. Uh, it's been a, a very volatile market. I think everyone sees that in their, their PA uh, pretty much every day as of late. Um, and the space markets are, are no exception. Um, if we look at the, the public equities um, in the space market, uh, they have, uh, you know, they've, they've underperformed the, the broader market. We can talk a bit uh, more about that later. Um, M&A activity has, has remained uh, relatively steady, and I think we can likewise talk about that further, but uh, it's a good reflection of uh, broad interest in the sector. Um, and if we look at fundraising, uh, while things are definitely getting a little bit more challenging and it's not the, the heady days of, of 2021 at the moment, uh, what's actually quite interesting is the level of uh, fundraising activity in space continues to be well ahead of pre-pandemic levels uh, today versus, say, 2018, 2019. You wrote that 55 of the 60 names in your indices are trading down. Justin, give us an example or two or, or three, if you feel like it, say, from your space infrastructure index and from your big four operators. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, if we look at those two indices, they're they're prime examples of of what we see across the uh, space and satellite public equity names. Um, where, if you look at the public universe of space and satellite companies, uh, it is overweight companies that have one of two characteristics. Either on the one hand, uh, it's a universe of so-called DSPAC companies, companies that went public. Uh, over the last couple of years via a SPAC mechanism, a non-traditional means of going public, um, and in many cases uh, reflecting uh, fairly early stage companies uh, deemed to have uh, fairly high growth uh, potential. Um, and on the other hand, uh, a basket of what I would characterize as more legacy-oriented names, companies that are in the very traditional space and satellite world, whether that be uh, traditional geo-based fixed satellite services operators uh, or whether that be companies uh, building uh, componentry uh, systems, spacecraft, typically in a, in a fairly traditional manner. So 
Um, the two indices that you mentioned, the uh, infrastructure and big four markets uh, that we track, those indices are uh, quite heavy uh, across those two types of companies. And those are uh, some of the names that, in the case of the DSPAC companies, uh, like many other companies, the, the investor, uh, both expectations and appetite for those story stocks has uh, frankly plummeted uh, with rising interest rates and increased market volatility and a shift away from risk in many corners of the market. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, the uh, traditional space names, um, many of them are, are facing uh, disruption or challenge. And as such, uh, the companies are um, uh, seeing valuations compress. Uh, and, and that's sort of irrespective of, of the market conditions that we're seeing at large. Can you give us some of those names just so that my listeners who don't follow the indices very closely can at least, you know, cling on to something that go, right, I know that company and I know them too. I mean, who, who are we talking about here? Sure. Um, in the space infrastructure market, uh, we've got companies like uh, Avio and Maxar, um, OHB, uh, MDA. Um, all of these are uh, well-recognized and, and you know, very solid companies uh, in the, I'd characterize as traditional space markets. There are some very interesting dynamics with, with some of those companies. Um, and actually, many of them have done uh, reasonably well uh, or even uh, outperformed the market. Um, in that same index, we do have some of these DSPAC names that have uh, pulled down uh, the overall index and and companies like Rocket Lab or Redwire um, and others, um, again, uh, good companies, uh, but uh, they've gotten swept into this uh, shift in in uh, appetite uh, and uh, seen share price compression that has um, you know underperformed the market um, so far this year. I think so, there's something, sorry, no, no. I, I need to jump in, but but I, I think there's something important there for the listener just to make sure they 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 track, which is there, there's two things going on, right? So the, the overall market has had a significant pullback. And to be specific, I'm talking about the S&P 500, right? So, you know, year to date, we're talking down about 25%, right? So the, so the overall market has had a big pullback. So there, we have to acknowledge that first. But then the second part of it is, in addition to the large market pullback, we've also had a acute pullback that's even larger for space businesses. And that is exactly where we're going because, you know, and, and I'm opening the floor to all three of you, you know, why is the space equity market underperforming and, you know, the, the broader public equity markets, you know, what makes space special in this regard? Um. Where I might start with that, I think the what's special about space um, is actually reflected both in the public and the private markets. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the level of activity happening in the private markets, um, it suggests that interest in space remains uh, certainly maybe not at, but near all-time highs. Uh, we see that every day in terms of M&A appetite, in terms of uh, private financing activity, venture capital activity, and so forth. Um, if we shift our attention to the public equity markets, um, again, to George's point earlier, 
Um, you know, the overall markets as a whole have, of course, uh, declined uh, quite a bit, um, uh, you know, so far this year, about 25 percent for uh, for the S&P and, and greater than that for the NASDAQ in terms of year to date uh, you know, share losses. Um, but if we look at the the space sector, um, the space sector is overweight uh, in terms of these DSPAC names, these companies that win public via SPAC. Um, and I think uh, while I fo focus less on the DSPAC companies outside of space and satellite, uh, I would uh, certainly anecdotally look at those as well and say that those shares have compressed quite significantly. Um, and so I think the, the composition of the public equities across the satellite and space universe are the reasons and factors responsible for that underperformance as a whole. And just so, you know, those who, again, don't have a business degree or the experience, what do you mean when you say overweight? Uh, so there is a, there has been a great deal of enthusiasm in the new space economy. Um, all these things, probably the, the reason we're here to begin with on your show, frankly. Um, and it's uh, very exciting stuff. It's, uh, it's a new, uh, new chapter for, for this industry. Um, and as such, when the phenomenon of um, uh, SPAC and, and DSPAC transactions uh, gained momentum uh, in 2019-2020, uh, many of the sectors that experienced the greatest um, interest on the part of SPACs and in turn uh, the greatest uh, level of activity in terms of going public via SPAC were uh, in sectors like space, where there was or, or is perceived to be uh, very attractive prospects for growth and development and disruption over the coming years. And so space got a great deal of attention by uh, numerous SPACs, and we see that um, a, a large number of companies are newly public in the space industry just over the last 18 months. And that's a result of this uh, DSPAC phenomenon. So overweight in this context means there's a greater percentage of those types of companies uh, within the broader universe of publicly traded space companies as compared to the market as a whole. And, and I think something to add there, too, is uh, we, we usually default and, and economists that we're guilty of it, too. I, I'm, I'm sure Brandon agrees. We we like to talk about the S&P 500 as, you know, the market. Right. But if we think about NASDAQ, right? NASDAQ year-to-date is down almost a third. And if we think about space companies in general, right, trying to access the new space economy, they are companies that tend to be higher growth prospects, um, probably a lot of their offering materials. Uh, and when I say offering materials, I mean uh, what the uh, SPAC people looked at, not actual offering materials. Um, <laughs> what uh, those materials, um, they were selling and talking about having access to space and space infrastructure and space industrialization as a service, right? So it's the it's the SaaS of space. And so that sounds a lot more like NASDAQ. And so when we think about the NASDAQ being down a third year to date, also, you know, have that part of your your overall uh, scaffolding, right? Your mental scaffolding, because it's okay, the S&P is down a quarter, you know, NASDAQ's down a third. Okay, well, now, how do we feel relatively speaking about some of these companies that went through space specs. Do we still, you know, do we still hold them to such a rigid standard when, you know, the other people in their cohort are also down by a third? Maybe not. Maybe we can be a little bit nicer to them. <laughs> so 
then what's the future? I mean, for sure that space companies, the infrastructure and the surfaces, you know, on the ground and off world are definitely needed. I mean, for the economy and definitely for defense. So what's going to happen a year out? I mean, are we going to stay in this funk or are we going to, you know, get out of it? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And and that's something I think a lot about, especially as we see turbulence in not only the space market today, but also the general market is how much of this is going to have a real tangible kind of uh, impact on the trend of the space industry and where it's going and how much of this really is just turbulence. So the challenge as I see it is, is figuring out um, what the real impact will be. So my thought is that uh, space is going to be an extremely important industry. And despite whatever, uh, you know, decrease in appetite for risky adventures like space there is today, we're still seeing, as I think we mentioned earlier, record investments um, in space. We are not seeing any noticeable pullback in uh, companies that are being started to solve problems in space, through space or for space. Um, and so uh, I think that the future for space is very bright. Um, I do think that this current moment will have some real uh, impacts on the future of space. Um, one obvious one is that we're going to see a lot of consolidations probably in the next few years. How many of that uh, of those would have happened naturally? Um, I'm not sure, um, but we're going to see more and more consolidation. So one thing that I've heard people talk about uh, as far as potential risks for this current moment and, and impacts that will change the trend in, in the future of space is ensuring that you know there is still that competitiveness. Uh, I think that's the defining trend that is uh, inspiring the future of a, a space economy is a, a resurgence of competitive activity. And I think it's in everyone's best interest to make sure that regardless of what consolidations happen and what M&A activity happens, that there is real competition um, in every sector and subsector within the space industry. I'd be curious to hear what what George and Justin think that uh, what impacts are going to stay and, and um, what's, uh, what's going to be uh, just circumvented um, once this turbulence is over. Absolutely. I mean, Justin, you, you spoke earlier that saying that there is a bit more to go into on the subject of M&A. So what are you seeing? Yeah, look, there's um, a, a tremendous appetite for uh, quality space companies, quality space assets at the moment. Um, in fact, if anything, I would argue that there is a scarcity, there's a dearth of attractive uh, space companies with capabilities that have been demonstrated and, and with um, intellectual property, uh, customers, you name it. Um, if you believe that the space economy is really at an inflection point going toward a place of, of growing importance and, and secular ongoing growth, which we certainly believe, then the companies that have built up that capability and that expertise and that workforce they are incredibly valuable right now. Um, and so we're not seeing any uh, decrease in the level of activity. Again, I'll emphasize the word quality, quality space companies um, in the private markets for M&A uh, remain extremely attractive. I, I would add one thing there. I would I would say too that there's also, um, in addition to just the, the pent up demand among uh, the IP that's being produced, which is becoming readily available, hopefully soon for commercial applications, not just DOD, but commercial applications. Um, we also still have a great number of SPACs out there searching for deals right now. So think of this as the supply side of money of the equation. Um, I'm going to go on a limb here and say that, you know, we'll continue to see 
more space SPACs in the not too distant future. If you have over 500 SPACs still looking for deals, it's more than likely that they're going to find some of those deals in the space industry. Which goes right into my question about space startups, you know, and I asked this uh, to your point, George, with a nod to defense because of the Space Force, the Space Development Agency, the Defense Innovation Unit, et cetera, they all say that innovation is the key to a secure future. So what's going to happen with these startups? I mean, is this also maybe a period of, of shaking out those folks who just don't have a good business plan? Cause I've been hearing that a lot lately and, and getting towards that quality that, that Justin's talking about. Ooh, okay. Let's see how much trouble I can get myself in here. So oh, I think, <laughs> so, so I think that when we're talking about the technology and the future that we need, for um, purposes of national defense, but also for the purposes of commerce following the flag, um, which is something that we debate in economics, is it the other way around? But I, you know, I think commerce follows the flag. Um, if if we look at it that way, then some of these companies that might get shaken out by the current economic conditions might have some amazing technology that it turns out we actually want or need. Um, and so if anything, this should be a period where we we look inward to see how we support these companies during this period, um, because obviously the SMEs, you know, the small, medium sized enterprises, they're going to be impacted even harder than someone who is facing the public markets because they're facing private markets and uh, private investors and and the VCs and the PEs and family offices of the world, and so I, I think we should be careful about what shaking out looks like that we don't also you know, shake out warp drive or, or shake out something else that we really want. Um, I also think that it's important that we keep in mind that space entrepreneurs, a lot of times, um, they come from, you know, hardcore science and technology backgrounds. There's not that many space economists. Uh, you know, you have two of them on your show. I think that's, you know, two of five. So like, this is a great show. Um, and so, <laughs> and so with that in mind, you know, they're, they're, they're building these, uh, these Star Trek futures that we all want, but they they have the indications and the signals out there that we're looking at a space economy that's going to be you know four trillion dollars or more by the 2040s. If you don't like my number, you know look at you know the Chinese space agency number. That's 10 trillion by the 2050s. So these are these are not small numbers. These are numbers that are the size of continents worth of economic activity. That's more economic activity than South America, Australia, Africa. So these are going to be big developed ecosystems in lunar, you know, 12 space stations or more, lots of activities. And so the companies that get shaken out today might be companies that don't get shaken out other places because being competitive in space also means being globally competitive. And so we have to make sure that we're, we're shepherding some of these companies right now. Is there anything for those companies? I mean, if they get shaken out, I mean, I, I don't see a safety net out there. Yeah, uh, there, there's very limited uh, safety net, if, if anything. I think uh, early in the, the pandemic in 2020, we saw a little bit of, of a safety net thrown to, to some companies, for example, in the responsive launch uh, area uh, as, as one specific example. But that's uh, few and far between, and I certainly wouldn't bet on it going forward. Um, one thing that is uh, important to maybe distinguish is um, the capital intensity um, of some of these early stage companies. Uh, the companies that have 
less capital intensity and or those space companies that can rapidly iterate, rapidly demonstrate milestones and progress against its business plan and with uh, revenues uh, in the, the the reasonably near future, um, they're in a pretty good place, uh, you know, irrespective of, of where uh, the capital markets may go uh, in the coming months. Uh, the companies that have massive uh, capex uh, plans and requirements, uh, those are the ones that really need to be thinking long and hard about how they plan to finance their business and to do what they can do to to weather the storm uh, should that storm uh, come to our doorstep. Yeah, I'll just build on that. I'm not sure to what extent today there exists uh, a real safety net for companies like this that fall by the wayside. I think most of us would agree that we don't really want too, too much of a safety net. Uh, it's one of the beautiful things about how our system works is that uh, companies that have good ideas and good people generally tend to succeed and ones that don't uh, are allowed to fail um, and they go off and do other uh, productive things. Uh, what I will say is that um, Speaking of uh, technologies that are important to defense, I, I think one of the significant trends that we've seen, or at least I've seen in the past decade or half decade, is that the defense community in various forms has really embraced uh, this more competitive, entrepreneurial-minded uh, space sector in a way that certainly was not the case in the early 2000s. Um, and that's really been a great thing. I think that small businesses, medium businesses with good ideas that are interested in bringing really innovative and from a defense perspective, important technologies to space have a lot more options today. You see it in uh, work that uh, the AFRL is doing. You see it in work that uh, AFWorks or SpaceWorks or you name some of the organizations that are doing really exciting, innovative work. Um, and it's been great to know and see the development of some of these young space companies who are just, you know, two guys with an idea and some good experience turn into uh, a contract from the space force. Um, and, you know, from there they can grow their technologies and then uh, have the space force or NASA as one customer among many um, in a competitive field. I think that's a, a future that we can all get excited about in a model that builds um, what George called, you know, some of these Star Trek futures. Uh, so that's something I'm really excited about. Um, actually, our, our most recent case study that we wrote was all about, you know, the rise of multipolarity and, and uh, uh, the commercial sector in light of a more, you know, shifting geopolitical environment, both on Earth and in space, and how all of these are interrelated. And the big question we ask at the end is, if you're a decision leader at the national level, figuring out how to best leverage commercial technologies and, and the the strength and speed of industry while uh, being aware of our defense needs, um, how do you do that? It's a tough question, and I'm glad to see that we have more and more activity uh, on that front. I would also add that, I mean, there seems to also be a, a renewed importance on phase two and phase three fundings, because it's that valley of death that seems to have uh, forced some companies to go under um, or possibly even made them attractive for um, uh, M&A activity. Uh, but that there's this phase two and phase three now option to assist these companies uh, to get through that valley of death. Now, speaking of defense issues, what do you guys think about Elon Musk and Starlink demanding more money from the DOD? And by the way, he did just re, you know, retract that Elon Musk and supposedly saying, oh, that letter that Starlink Inc., uh, rather SpaceX sent to the DOD in September. Yeah, I didn't really mean it. No, I, I mean, 
was Elon Musk trying to get one over on the Pentagon or are the numbers real and the cost of Starlink or, you know, Starlink is way above what's been advertised? I mean, is it like the problem with the Tesla roofs where commitments were agreed to by homeowners at a price and then the company just sort of jacked it up later? I mean, what is going on? This is this is really weird. Ooh, I can go first because I saw a long pause and I'll go first because um, Elon's never going to invite me on his board. So it's fine. Um, no, I will go first. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go. I'll go first because, you know, they're they're not a public company. So we don't really have a window into what their Edgar filings could tell us. Right. So for us to do the, you know, the work of financial economists and do the forensics and say, OK, what's you know, what's going on within this business? What's it look like? you know, where the costs associated with goods sold, et cetera. We don't, we don't really have that sort of window um, into SpaceX. We, we know what their awards have been. Uh, we, can, we can obviously look on both uh, DOD and NASA to see what those awards are, what public awards are available. But after that, it is not a public company. And therefore, we don't really have a clear window into what the pricing may actually be. And maybe this ask the Pentagon was based on real prices, which means it's actually a loss leader for now. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, electronically steered flat panel antennas, uh, you know, um, and, uh, you know, user terminals in general, um, they're not cheap. Um, and, uh, you know, Starlink's terminal, you know, we suspect costs somewhere on the order of 1300 bucks. Uh, you know, if you're a consumer in the U.S., you know, you're you're spending uh, $600. So it's there is a subsidy attached. Um, in the case of Ukraine, it, it is costing money. Uh, to George's point, how much is it costing? Hard to say. Uh, what are the politics of of asking for, you know, sticking your hand out and asking for money? Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> what are the politics? What are the economics of not doing that? I don't know. <laughs> it's tough to say, um, but it's not free. Uh, that that much is certain. No, it, it isn't free. I mean, uh, USAID definitely put in some money, as uh, did the Polish government, and I would imagine uh, some other governments and other departments of other governments, et cetera, et cetera. It's just that, you know, I've looked back at the stories and, you know, I've done the math. And mind you, I'm a journalist, which means I'm not really good at math. But but even if I just do some basic stuff with a calculator, it, it just like I'm not getting it. You know, I, I'm just like not seeing whatever it is I'm supposed to see. The extra costs have to be in there somewhere. And it's not like I could see that what they're asking for is wrong. It, just like George said, I just can't see through the veil, right? Maybe one way to think about the veil, I'm going to use your word. Um, maybe one way to think about the veil is think about your electricity bill, right? So Think like so. I'm I'm Pepco. I'm I'm here in the D.C. area. So, think about your Pepco bill. You have a line item on there that says transmission fees, and then you have another line item on there that says energy costs. But in truth, the transmission costs, the amount of money it costs to maintain the lines, maintain the infrastructure, is probably actually quite a bit higher than it shows up on your bill, and the energy cost is probably actually a little bit lower. But these are two line items, and that's how they bill it, and that's how they're approved to bill. This might be something similar with Starlink, right? The, the infrastructure itself might actually be quite a bit higher than the ticket price because it's in that other line item, you know, the reoccurring subscription that they're seeing break even and then profits. 
that'd be one way to look at it. And that seemed pretty reasonable based on the internal math that's been sort of revealed in all these conversations he's been having and then retracting himself from. And considering that the Ukraine military, you know, loses, I think, roughly 500 units a month due to all the reasons of war, you know, I, it, it's not surprising, to be honest. I, I remember I lost my sat phone in Baghdad and that was no bueno. Yes. And it was, and it cost about as much as a Starlink terminal, I must say. Yeah, it was, it was no bueno. Uh, but it, it, it just, you know, again, it, it just seems just like so weird and it's being debated in the public on Twitter and it's like, nobody's winning. All right. Four last comments before we go, where is the space economy headed? Do we have a positive note that we can end this on guys? <laughs> We're as bullish as ever at Quilty Analytics. I mean, this is this is the the beginning, uh, not not the end. Um, and so, whatever the, the the public markets may do, whatever the the broader economy may do over the short term, um, just look at uh, the cost of launch. It's gone down precipitously, orders of magnitude. Uh, you know, between the um, what SpaceX has done for launch and what SpaceX and a range of other companies uh, are likely to do to the cost of launch. So the infrastructure is being laid for this new space economy and the applications uh, of space, both in the commercial domain and, and for defense and, and civilian uh, purposes, uh, are growing by the day. Um, and so the importance uh, from a geopolitical standpoint, the importance from an economic standpoint of space are, are only going to grow more important over the coming years. So we're uh, ecstatic about the the general direction of of where the industry is going, and 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 optimistic that whatever the the bumps in the road may be here in the short term, that um, it's a bright future over the next uh, five or ten years. Yeah, Justin, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that whatever kind of the micro peaks and valleys are, uh, as far as the trajectory of the space industry over the next you know ten fifty years, uh, I, I think that its trajectory is. Um, clear it's going to be an extremely important industry a transformative one not only for people and businesses and nations that are interested in space but also for pretty much every industry here on earth i think if you look at some of the impacts whether it's remote sensing whether it's uh, you know satellite internet um, we're just starting to scratch the surface as far as the real impact that space industry uh, or space companies are having for regular people here on earth that don't think a lot about space or don't really care about it. Um, if you're interested more in how that's changing, uh, we have an article in the Harvard Business Review coming out next week. And our message is all about, you know, hey, the, the time to form your space strategy is now if you're a, a space, what we call a space agnostic company. Um, because if you're not thinking about how these nascent space technologies, and they are a lot of them pretty nascent, um, they're, they're coming for your industry, they're coming for you. If you're not thinking about it, then your your competitors might be. And so I, I highly encourage you to uh, buy some quilty reports and, and uh, uh, get smart on this real quick um, because uh, it, it's really exciting um, and it's going to be transformative. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there. And I, I guess I'll just uh, finish echoing. Uh, I'm also very uh, optimistic about the long-term prospects of space industrialization and the space economy. And I also think it's important that when we have these conversations, we're talking about not just up and out, but we're talking about down and around. So we're talking about how these solutions that we're coming up with, these technologies that is being developed right now, whether it be space-based solar power or whether it be in-situ research 
research resource utilization, or it is um, you know deorbiting and collecting and recycling materials in space. All of these technologies are going to transfer not just up and out, but down and around the entire Earth. It's going to benefit us all, and that should be part of the conversation that we have every time we talk about space. We we owe so much technology that allows our modern day of life to space, and it's just going to pick up more and more as the space economy continues to grow. George, Brendan, Justin, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Laura. Appreciate it. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.